What we're going to see tonight uh, in John 4, we're not going to read it quite yet, but we're going to see Jesus uh, going and talking to a woman from Samaria. And it's just one of those things that you would blow right past it if you're just kind of having your quiet time or read, reading the Bible. You'd just go right through it and not uh, give it much thought. But bear with me for about, hopefully about six or seven minutes as we lay the framework for this, and it'll help the rest of the night, and it'll hopefully help us so much more um, as we grasp this. Okay. In Genesis, in the beginning of the Bible, there was a guy named Jacob. Okay, Jacob was uh, what the Jewish people call, what in the world is that? Okay, thought we had guns going off back there. Uh, Jacob uh, is one of the father figures for the Jewish nation. Um, he is one of their patriarchs. He is a big deal. Now, Jacob purchased a piece of land um, in Samaria, okay? He purchased a piece of land and he dug this huge well there. Okay, this big, long well, a big, deep well. And he fed his family from it. I mean, fed, gave them drink from it, whatever. Um, and his animals, it was a, a great well. It's actually still there today, right? Jacob's well is still there. Um, what happened was is that um, Jacob then sold off his estate to his son, Joseph. He gave it to Joseph as an inheritance. Now, as some of y'all are kind of familiar with Bible stories, some not, Joseph then, through a series of famines uh, and different things, he ended up in Egypt, which is down over here somewhere. So Jacob and his whole family had to pack up and move to Egypt. And they were in Egypt for 400 years in slavery. 400 years they were there. Now, um, what happened uh, is then that they, they came back out of Egypt. They came out of slavery after that 400 years. And they came back to this land. And they settled. And they were there um, for quite a while, several uh, 1,000, 1,500 years, until, this is a big day, it's 720, okay, this isn't just Bible history talking. If you don't believe the Bible, this is confirmed history. In 720, the Assyrians, who were from way up there, up there by that light, um, they came down and they invaded uh, this area right here, Samaria, Judea, and Galilee. They invaded that land. They captured it. And they carried about 80% of the people off, the Jewish people. They carried them off. But what happened back then is when a country came and conquered another country, they would leave the weakest 20%. The people who maybe had physical abnormalities or they were young children sometimes or they just weren't the cream of the crop of the people who were conquered. So they took the good and healthy 80% away, left these 20 there, and then other nations sent their own people to kind of fill the void. Okay, so all of a sudden you have these other nations who are coming and mixing with these Jewish people. Now, what happens is that these Jewish people who had been... A, a, had one God. Yahweh was their God. They now start mixing religious practices with all these other nations. So they start having syncretistic worship, which just means you're worshiping other things at the same time. You're syncing your, you sync your iPod. It's kind of things are lining up and all that kind of stuff, right? That's what's happening. Their lives are syncing up with these other peoples around them. This is not a good thing. <laughs> uh, if you're a Jewish person and you've been deported, Right? You're thinking, you're hoping things were all right back in the homeland, hoping one day to go back there. Okay? Well, after about 300 years, uh, they come, after, actually after, um, yeah, about 300 years, that's fine. Uh, they come back to the land. The Jews come back to the land. They were released from Assyria. Um, and when they come back, they see that there are some of their relatives who had stayed behind, obviously not the same ones they knew, but their, their lineage who had stayed behind. When they started mixing, mixing with these other gods and becoming syncretistic, they were doing things like sacrificing their own kids to appease these other gods because these other gods demanded that. 
They had rules like, if you want to have more kids, you have to start sacrificing the ones you have. And it sounds ridiculous to us, but it's what they were believing. It's what they were doing. And so imagine you come back to your homeland, right, this big homecoming, hoping for some big welcome, and you see your own people sacrificing their children, bowing down to other gods. Okay? Now, what these people were called who mixed with these syncretistic religions and all this stuff, this is who the Samaritans are. Okay, this is, those are the Samaritans. That's who they became known as uh, throughout history. They kind of took on the name of their region up there. Now, um, the people who came back uh, after that 300 years up in Assyria, the people who come back in about 420 B.C., this is before Jesus comes, they decide, hey, we want to rebuild our temple. Whenever they were invaded, the temple was destroyed and all that stuff. They said, we want to rebuild our temple. Okay, so they do it. Uh, they go down to Jerusalem and decide they're going to rebuild the temple. This is the second temple. The Samaritans come alongside and say, hey, what can we do to help? What can we do to help you guys? And what do the Jews tell them? They say, we don't want anything to do with you, you half-breeds. You know God worshiping, child sacrificing, half-breeds, scoundrels, mongrels, whatever word you can think of, that's who the Samaritans were in the Jews, uh, the, uh, the people of Israel. That's who they were in their eyes. They were a low life. They were nobodies. Okay? So the Samaritans then said, fine, we'll go build our own temple uh, at a place, Sikhar is right about the middle of that map. Um, there's a big mountain there named Gerizim. They said, we're going to build our own temple on Mount Gerizim. Y'all go build your temple in Jerusalem. We're going to build our temple on Mount Gerizim, and that's where we're going to worship. Well, the Jews uh, only put up with it for about 300 years. Okay, we're getting close. In about 120 B.C., uh, the Jews march right up to Mount Gerizim, right up to the Samaritan temple near Sychar. And what do they do? They destroy the Samaritan's temple. Destroy it. They hate the Samaritans. They hate what they've become. And the Samaritans hate the Jews. They hate what they've done to them. They've ruined their lives. They've ruined their way of worship. Okay? Fast forward 120 years and Jesus comes. These people hate each other still. It's not any better. These people are at odds with each other. Let's look down now um, at John chapter 4, uh, beginning of verse 1. We're going to read this story, uh, and I'm not going to talk for as long as I normally do, um, because we've just spent some time doing that. Uh, but I want to read this story, and I want you to be thinking, having these categories in your mind as we look at this. Um, it should really help us. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making disciples and baptizing more disciples than John, and this is, this is the writer John's parentheses here. It says, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Uh, he, Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Okay, so he's going from south to north. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There, was a woman of Samaria, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Uh, and John again commenting says, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, 
and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, Well, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray briefly, if you would, before we look at this passage. (coughs) Father, help us. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Uh, Open our hearts that we might uh, accept truth. Father, if there's anything that's truthful out of this, I pray that it would penetrate into the core of who we are, that we would be changed. I pray that I would hide behind your word, uh, and that I wouldn't be preaching anything about myself or anything that just sounds good to me, Father, but I want to preach the truth, and I pray that you would uh, carry that forward from me tonight. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Uh, When I was preparing this message, I ran across a sermon, I'm going to move over here in the middle real quick, Um, a sermon by a guy named Mark Driscoll. Some of y'all know him. He's a pastor up in Seattle, or know of him. Pastor up in Seattle, kind of rock star figure right now. He's wildly popular, and he's a pretty good preacher. But he preaches for an hour, so I figure I shouldn't copy the sermon exactly. Um, but I got a lot of help from him. So if you hear me make a, uh, a good point tonight, uh, rest assured it's probably his and not mine. So <laughs> just want to give credit where credit's due. So with the background that we have uh, for this story, there are three things that I want to see, I want to see quickly. Uh, the first one is this is that Jesus is a safe place to bring your circumstances. Jesus is a safe place to bring your circumstances. And the first thing we notice about this uh, this point is in verse 4 where it says that he had to pass through Samaria. What I failed to mention earlier is that if you were a good Jew in that day, a good religious Jew, you wouldn't walk through Samaria. If you had to go to Galilee, which was also a Jewish area, if you're going from Judea to Galilee, you would walk around Samaria. That would take you six days. If you wanted to go straight through Samaria, it would only take you two days. But good Jews during the day walked around. So it's interesting that in verse 4 that it says that he had to go to Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. Because, I mean, unless there was like some reason just that day that we don't know about, Jesus didn't have to. But John knows something uh, about Jesus and why he came and why God had come and sent Jesus to the world. Um, The Greek says that it was necessary that he pass through Samaria. Jesus had to go through this land for some reason, right? And he had to go through this land because he had to come and do that 
which the Father had sent him to do. And that was to make things right in the world. Jesus had to come and show people that it's not about your religious background. It's not about what you've done in the past. It's not about who you currently are. What religion you profess, what race you have, anything about your ethnicity or anything. Jesus is saying, no, it's not about that at all. And so he goes right up through Samaria. What you've done doesn't matter, he's saying. Your circumstances are no matter to me. Secondly, we see that Jesus meets uh, the woman at the well at noontime. Now, you would probably, this is one of those things you just read right past and not know, it's sixth hour, okay? They started their days, the Jewish kind of, as they were thinking about their day, they started at, at 6 a.m. or so when the sun came up. So if it's the sixth hour, it's noon, it's middle of the day in the Middle East, y'all, it's hot. It is hot, 120 or more. And this woman comes to Jesus at the well at that hour. And why, um, why is this a big deal? No one would have been at the, at the well at this hour. You have to understand that. Except Jesus. And except this woman. So why is she there? Well, women in the day, uh, as they went to draw water for their families in these big jars and stuff, they would go out in the morning, in the cool of the morning, or in the late, late afternoon. And they'd go out in droves. It was a social occasion. They would be going with their friends, and they'd be talking along the way, and probably chatting it up, city gossip, and all that stuff. It's like the equivalent of if you're from a small town, the couple restaurants that all the older women go to, and they just sit around for like hours and talk. But once one o'clock comes, boom, they're not there. Right? They're home taking naps or doing whatever, whatever older women do in the afternoon. I don't know. Uh, it's like at a Luby's. You're going to see them at four, but you're not going to see them at six because they're asleep. Um, but something's going on like that. Uh, the, the, the women, the, the people of social stature in the town, they have come and gone, and here's this lady coming by herself. She's by herself at noontime. It tells a lot about her without even saying anything at all about her. She's there at the sixth hour. Well, this woman, um, we see thirdly, is that Jesus initiates with her. Now, this doesn't seem like a big of a deal if we hadn't just heard the background we know. Okay, women in that day, didn't, they weren't always as respected as men. Okay, so Jesus, and that may be an understatement of the night. Um, Jesus comes and he initiates with her. He says, give me a drink. Which sounds very chauvinistic or whatever. It's, I mean, get over it. It's, it's really not. Um, he's saying, give me a drink. And so she rightly responds and says, uh, uh, how are you a Jew? As verse 9 is saying, how are you asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? What are you doing? Well, Mark Driscoll says something here that's very, um, very intuitive, and it's just it's really humbling. He says that culturally speaking, what Jesus would have been doing in that day would have obliterated his reputation. If someone else, which the disciples later do see him talking to her, if someone else would have seen uh, him talking to a Samaritan woman, he would have been done. His reputation would have been gone because a, a Samarit- the Samaritans really, the dirty half-breeds, the false god-worshipping, sacrificing children Samaritans, why are you talking to them? He would have been written off as a fool. See, he says that, um, Driscoll says that we live in a culture today where we care all too much about reputation and we care all too little about, about holiness and about love for others and coming to where they are. We care too much about reputation, too little about holiness. So what kind of guy 
would do that? What kind of guy would throw off his whole reputation, risk it all to come and talk to a Samaritan woman? Well, God would. God would. He would abandon heaven and come to earth to talk to people like this all the time. See, he comes and talks to people that we don't talk to. God comes and calls people to himself who you or I wouldn't count worthy of a conversation. He comes and he opens his heart and loves this woman where she is. You know, there's no doubt that this woman would have had all kinds of words and thoughts going through her mind. Used, perhaps. She'd been with five men. She was with another one now who wasn't giving her the dignity of even marrying her. Maybe she was worn out in the social, by social standards. Um, she was kind of washed up. She was a has-been. She was a whore. I mean, what, what else can you call her? She's had five husbands and is now sleeping with a sixth guy. And God comes to her and meets her where she is at this well, and he initiates with her. So I want you to think about perhaps some of the things that go across in your mind. Some of the names that you have for yourself when you're feeling unloved and unlovable. What do you think? What are those things when you lay on your pillow at night in the saddest and loneliest times that we all have? The reasons why you're just sure that no one likes you. And for some of you, it's a very palatable thing. You're lonely, and it's just a day-in, day-out experience that you have. It's no real reach. You don't have to think about it too hard. You know, what's sad, maybe saddest about that is sometimes it's Christians who have given you those names. Who, for some reason, thinking themselves better than you or in some way superior in a better position than you, have called you these things, have branded you a certain way. Uh, And these are the things that you hear. The voices inside you tell you. It's what you believe about yourself. And so as one who calls himself a Christian, I want to apologize and say I'm sorry. I'm really sorry that... Me and others like me have done that to you. That's not right. God is not that kind of God, and we're not representing him well when we do things like that. Christians, I want you to be thinking that as you look at this, if you're thinking, if you're kind of thinking Jesus being edgy and it's really cool that Jesus is, you know, coming to women like this and people like this and that he's going to convert them and get their life all pulled together. You think it's just so neat that Jesus can do that to even even to people like that. I want you to hear that Jesus doesn't come to even people like that. But Jesus comes to only people like that. He only comes to people who, whether you wear it on the outside or it's all there on the inside, who are broken and who have made a mess of their lives and who are sin, sinful from the inside out, if not from the outside in. And Jesus comes to these kind of people and he changes them. And so that is one of two things. Either you need to reconsider um, who you think yourself to be and what you think uh, your level of goodness is or whatever that means. What, how much did Jesus really have to do to save you? Have, you? have you been pretty good? Or do you believe yourself to have uh, a heart like this woman that's been given out to many other things, that has served many other gods and loved many other uh, false gods along the way? Or secondly, um, you see that 
those who have realized the depths of their sin, Christians who realize who they are from the inside out, they look at God and they can't believe that He would love them. They look like this woman, what are you doing talking to me? That Christians who get the gospel, who get that they had nothing to bring to the table except their own need and brokenness, these are the Christians who will be humble. And you'll be willing and wanting to talk to others about Jesus because you realize He saved someone like you. How could, how could it be? So you'll be a thankful Christian. Right? Secondly, uh, overall, second big point we see tonight, uh, not only do we see that Jesus is a safe place to bring your circumstances, but Jesus is a, he's a safe place to bring your confession. Okay, in verse 15, this woman has indicated that she wants some of this living water that Jesus has offered her. She wants some of it. It's, I mean, likely she doesn't really even know what he's talking about, doesn't get the full uh, force of what this is, but she says she wants it. And Jesus' response to her flows so naturally, doesn't it? Okay, so go get your husband. What are you doing? What are you talking about, Jesus? You, she just said that she wanted what you offered her, and now you tell her to go get her husband and come back. Certainly ashamed at the fact that she's living with a man who's not her husband. Um, she turns and confesses to Jesus and says just that, I have, I have no husband. I have a friend who, uh, he does what I do at a different school, and he was sitting out with a girl last week, and they were having coffee or lunch or something. And this girl had, was clearly distressed about something. And so she sat down with him and told him that she had this boyfriend last spring who had gone too far physically in the relationship. And uh, he didn't tell me what all that meant. I'm not sure she told him. But um, she clearly said, we've, we've gone too far. So we didn't have sex, but, but we went too far. And so, you know, he was thankful that she had told him, kind of brought him in to help her and, uh, and to give her some, um, you know, some words and, uh, over that. Well, then he turns around a couple days later and hears someone, a couple other people talking about how that same girl uh, had been sleeping with that guy for like four months. They, they were having sex all the time. And so he had gotten this partial confession um, from this girl, and, um, and you know, he just kind of felt duped by it. Well, Jesus gets some sort of partial confession uh, from this woman. She says, you're right, I have no husband. And you've had five husbands. And the one you're with now is not your husband either. Now, while you have to catch this, because that feels scary. That feels scary that Jesus, and mean that Jesus would do that. Like, he's just piling on to this girl's mess already, this woman's mess. And he's saying, no, I'm really going really to stick it to you and show you how bad you've been. But he's actually showing her great kindness. And he's showing her that he is a safe place for her to bring her confession, because Why? Because he knows what she's done. He knows what she's done, and he is still coming to her. He's saying, look, I know, I know you don't have a husband. I know you've had five of them. I know you're sleeping with some guy right now. I'm still here, aren't I? She just didn't bolt and leave. Why is it that we also, whenever we're confessing to God in, in quiet moments, or maybe even with friends, asking friends to help us, why is it that we're so hesitant to really let someone in on what's going on? Why is it? It's because we're ashamed. Because we tell ourselves that if, if someone knows me that well, if they get in that deep to who I am, they're not going to love me. They're going to run the other way. We're scared of that. 
Friends, what Jesus is coming and saying is that He is a safe place to bring all of that. Because as you confess to Him, He's saying, look, I know. I know what you've done. He's God. He knows everything. And so your confession doesn't surprise Him. You can lay it all on Him. And I hope that one day you realize that you uh, find someone in the church who you can lay it on to and who can walk with you through this stuff. It's the way forward. It's the way to having your heart remade. It's healthy. It's only right that we confess our sins to God and to one another. This woman has done just that. See, Jesus wants to move past the smoke and mirrors with this woman and get into the core of who she is. He's already shown her that the outward identity and circumstances aren't too much for him. They're just not. They're not um, above him. They're not going to overwhelm him. Because his, his pursuing and affectionate care and love is there and has met her. He's going to continue meeting with her. He is a safe place to bring your confession. So he gets past her outward circumstances. He goes into who she is, getting into the fabric of her being. So he's talking about her heart and how she's had all these different husbands. So Jesus is moving closer and closer. And thirdly and finally, we see tonight that Jesus is a safe place to bring your confusion. He's a safe place to bring your confusion. So having moved from the circumstances to coming toward the middle, I would suggest that Jesus goes to the very heart of this woman's life. What do they start talking about? Worship. Worship. Jesus goes for her very, the center of who she is. Now you see, worship, I'm going to define it this way. Worship isn't just something that you do at church on Sundays, or it's not just something that um, you do uh, when you sing or you're praising God or something like that. Worship is when you give yourself and your heart, your soul, your mind, your time to anything above all else. You're worshiping something whenever you have given it so much of yourself to it in pursuit that whenever that thing goes away, and if that thing goes away, you're going to be crushed and you're going to be devastated and your life is going to feel like you just have to pick up the pieces. And friends, whatever that thing is that you fill in the blank for, that if I lose this, this blank, my life is going to be destroyed. I'm not going to be the same. I would suggest that's what you're worshiping. And it's easy to see that we worship all sorts of things, isn't it? We worship relationships and we worship uh, control over other people. We worship the way we look. We worship uh, money. We can worship uh, a power, popularity even. All the things you struggle with are things that you legitimately can worship. And you see, um, we're people who were created to worship. That's why this happens all the time. We were created to worship plain and simple. You will either be worshiping God and number one in your life, or you're going to worship something else. So it's not what you're worshiping. It's not, it's not if you're worshiping, it's what you're worshiping. And so Jesus is coming right at this woman's heart. She starts to talk about worship. Because he's already gotten there. She's freely talking about this. And it's just because it seems so weird. They come out of left field and she starts talking about worshiping on this mountain and that mountain. And now it may be right that she's kind of thrown up these smoke screens like, yeah, let's move away from the husband talk. That wasn't real comfortable. Um, let's start talking about worship. Let's get into like a religious dialogue here. And it, it might be that. There might even be an aspect of that here. But what's happening is that um, Jesus has got her there. And they're talking about worship. They're talking about the very fabric of who she is. You see, um, Jesus, 
is talking about all, or she's talking about all that she knows. She's like, look, I know that, I know that my people, the Samaritans, they worship on this mountain. And I know that your people, the Jews, they talk about worshiping in Jerusalem. She's, she's giving Jesus a history, like a church history lesson here, which is kind of ridiculous, right? But she's like, let me, this is all I know. And it's kind of, as a pastor, I'm getting this a lot, I'm finding out that, you know, I'm on an airplane or something, and people are like, oh, what do you do? First of all, it's a really short conversation, because once I say I'm a pastor, it's like, and we're done. But um, maybe the response is something like this. Oh, well, cool. My mom got married in a Presbyterian church. And that's like it. They don't want to say anything else. It's like, what is my quickest way out of this conversation? And so this, this woman's throwing up these things. Like, how do I get out of this? Let's talk about church stuff. Let's see she talks about one more later. Um, Jesus then uh, says that God is not interested in your church background or your church parent or who, you ter- who your parents were, what church they went to or anything. God's not interested in that. And he says, in fact... There's going to come a day, and in fact, it's here right now. Uh, when you're, it's not going to matter where you worship. God is looking for people who worship him in spirit and truth. Okay? So he's saying, do away with your categories of what you think pleases God and who you think or where you think he wants you to worship. Because God is looking for true worshipers who worship him as he is in spirit and truth. He can't be confined to a place, but he must be worshipped as he is, and that is in truth. Now, can't you picture this woman right now? It's kind of enter into what she's probably feeling right now. I have a feeling that she's worn down. In this conversation, there's Jesus, she's offered up um, kind of the smoke screen of her husband's. Jesus has walked with her through that. And she's kind of thrown up this next throat, smoke screen of her, um, of her religion. And Jesus has walked with her through that and said, no, nah, that doesn't matter either. She's done the one with her race. Like, how are you talking to me, a Samaritan? Jesus says, no, you're getting past that. This woman's got to be at the last, just at her wit's end, crying, emotional, saying, Jesus, what left is there? What do I have left? And every turn, Jesus has offered her love and acceptance. And he keeps talking with her, showing that he's willing to be there with her in this. At the end of the conversation, her her final smokescreen she throws up, she says this, look, I know that Messiah is coming. I know that there's this man named, uh, they call the Messiah who's coming. He's going to make things right one day. And I know that when he comes, he'll tell us all things. He'll make it all right. I know that when he comes, everything will be good. Messiah's the only way left for her. He's her only hope. Jesus has just uh, walked through the rest of it with her. She's trying to look for one more out. Messiah's her last-ditch effort to save herself can picture her crying and sad and frustrated, saying, I just want to be done with this conversation, Jesus. And he turns to her. And what does he say? Look down that last verse. I who speak to you am he. And the floodgates break open. This woman's final hope has just been realized in who this person Jesus is who hasn't run from her race or her religion or her relationships. He's sat patiently with her through it. And she says, look, I just need to get to, I, I want Messiah to come. I don't care what happens to him. He'll make it all right there. Jesus says, I am that one. I am he. See, Jesus wasn't afraid of her circumstances or her partial confession. He wasn't afraid of her confusion over religious things at all. He's not afraid of yours. He's not. He's not afraid of your circumstances and what you bring to the table or your partial confessions that we've offered. 
He's not afraid of your confusion or anything. He comes to the very core of who we are also. It says to us that He's the one that we long for. That you think you long for a relationship, you think you long for approval from other people. Jesus is the one who you long for. He comes to her and shows that he had a bigger problem because she, she wasn't at the well because she was thirsty. She was actually broken. It takes Jesus to show her that, that we come to Jesus for all sorts of things. We want him to fill these little needs that we think we have. But what Jesus is trying to get us to see is that we're not just thirsty. We're actually broken. And we need something. We need someone to come and make us right. If you're here thinking, that's right, I am broken. My life needs to be put back together. This world has left you wanting something else. Friends, there's such good news in this passage. There's such good news. Because there's the kind of water, there is a kind of water that can mend brokenness. There's a water that can fix it. Jesus says to you in verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water, the earthly water, the things of this world, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. For the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Friends, you're not thirsty. You're not. You're broken. Come to Christ. Let his living water heal you. That's what you need. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe that this is the truth. We turn to many things because we think they will help us. Convince us in our hearts that you are what our hearts have longed for. Only you will fill us. But that's good news because your water is life-giving water. Lord, let that overjoy us to know that you would sit and be patient and want someone like us to come to you to be welcome at your table. What a joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand back up and we'll sing one more song.